The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, let us uh, continue. So we have been uh, looking at the hindrances uh, and uh, these defilements and the defilements that you need to overcome to have success in your meditation practice. Uh, and as I was uh, uh, saying yesterday, one of the main, or maybe the main hindrance, the one that kind of lies behind all of them, is the problem of attachment to the sensory world, uh, or as it is called in the suttas very often, sensual pleasures. Uh. And uh, so I want to have a little bit more look at that uh, uh, this morning, uh, just to see how we can think about this uh, and how we can reflect on it such in such a way as to reduce that attachment to that world uh, and to reduce those desires. And hopefully that will then give rise to uh, deepening of one's meditation practice as a consequence. Uh, and these things that I'm going to have a look at, these are uh, ways of thinking about the world, uh, ways of reflecting. These are not really so much prescriptions about what to do, uh, but more like how to reflect. And as you reflect on these things in this way, then uh, that it isn't pretty much an automatic process then uh, that you uh, are less interested in these things because that's what these kind of reflections tend to lead to. Uh, so uh, let us... Um, have a look at this. The first little sutta here uh, is called the uh, Tapusa Sutta, uh, and this is just a small extract uh, uh, from a lo much longer sutta, just to kind of give a, again how the Buddha uh, uh, practiced this. This is one of these autobiographical suttas where the Buddha talks about his own practice, uh, and they're often quite quite interesting here. Uh. And this is what the Buddha uh, has to say. Before my awakening, while I was just a bodhisattva, uh, not yet fully awakened, it occurred uh, to me. Good is renunciation, good is solitude. Yet my mind did not launch out upon renunciation and become placid, settled and liberated in it, though I saw it as peaceful. It occurred to me, why is it that my mind does not launch out upon renunciation, become placid, settled, and liberated in it, though I see it as peaceful? Then it occurred to me, I have not seen the danger in sensual pleasures, and have not cultivated that insight. I have not achieved the benefit in renunciation, and have not pursued it. Therefore, my mind does not launch out upon renunciation, become placid, settled, and liberated in it, though I see it as peaceful. So, uh, uh, the idea here of launching out, becoming settled, and liberated in renunciation, this refers to uh, samadhi, because it is in samadhi that you renounce the sensory world. So, you kind of become liberated from that sensory world. Uh, in your samadhi practice. Uh, so even though you already have some idea that renunciation or giving some of these things up is good, that solitude is a nice thing, uh, still the mind is not yet fully ready for that yet. And the reason, as he says here, is because you haven't fully understood uh, the danger in the sensual pleasures. Uh, and uh, again, it's important here to recognize that sensual pleasures means that whole world of sensory existence, yeah, the world that we are pretty much immersed in at all times, because everything we do, uh, most things we do, uh, most of our experience in life uh, is uh, a part, is uh, kind of, we are engulfed by the, se the sensory world, uh, it is around us all the time, uh, and it, for that reason, that is where the problem arises. Uh. So you have to see that the danger in that world, uh, the, the downside, if you like, uh, and also, at the same time, fully understanding the benefit of renunciation. And the benefit of renunciation, you understand gradually as your meditation deepens and you see the benefits that arise from meditation practice, the happiness, the peace, the insight, and all the other things that come from that. So the two go to, together here. So this is what the, how the Buddha was thinking before his awakening. So he's obviously saying we should practice the same thing here. I should maybe briefly comment on the very first sentence here, because uh, usually this is quite a common sentence in the suttas. Uh, when the Buddha talks about his own life, uh, he says, Before my awakening, while I was just a bodhisattva, 
And you may think that perhaps this is a Mahayana Sutta because it talks about Bodhisattvas there. So maybe this is maybe it's an infiltration of the Mahayana Suttas into the Theravada canon. The pure, pristine word of the Buddha has been, has been uh, you know, polluted by some later <laughs> Sutta perhaps. But that's not actually what is going on here. What is happening here is that uh, this word does actually exist in early Buddhism as well. It's just that the meaning of the word is slightly different. Uh, and it's always like that, that the later suttas, whether they are Mahayana suttas or later Theravada Buddhist teachings or whatever they are, uh, they always are a development from the early teachings. Uh, so most of these things are actually found in the early suttas. Uh, so Bodhisattva, the word, it exists. The Buddha seems to have used it. Yeah, this is the same word as Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is Sanskrit. This is a Pali version of that. And um, uh, uh, but uh, the meaning in the early suttas is simply when the Buddha to be goes forth from the home life. At that point, he is a Bodhisattva. Yeah, after going forth from the home life, that is when he is a Bodhisattva. And why is that? And uh, the reason for that, and it's not so easy to understand perhaps from the way uh, the word is normally used, when it is used as bodhisattva in Sanskrit, uh, it means something like awakening being, and sattva in Pali can also mean being, uh, but uh, it has been pointed out that uh, that may not be the correct understanding of this word, that uh, an alternative understanding is that it, it is related to the Sanskrit word sakta, which means intent on uh, someone who is intent on or pursuing awakening here. So while I was still pursuing awakening, yeah, then it kind of makes sense. And that kind of makes, uh, to me, is a much better reading of that word uh, bodhisattva than uh, awakening being. Awakening being is a bit cryptic, not entirely clear exactly how you, how that, what is meant by that. But one who is intent of awakening, it makes perfect sense in this particular context. So related to the Sanskrit word bodhisattva. So that is the distinction then between later suttas and later Buddhist tradition. In later Buddhist tradition, the bodhisattva is the one who has kind of been intent on awakening for eons and going on and on and on, trying to find an end to suffering, etc., and trying to reach this full awakening, and then becomes all all kind of overtones and additional meanings in later Mahayana Buddhism and also in Theravada Buddhism. But in the suttas, it just refers to the Buddha-to-be in his last life when he is searching for awakening. That is not the full truth. There's a little bit more to that story than that, but I'll, I'll leave that out because I don't want to get into a, a long discussion about bodhisattvas at this particular stage. Otherwise, uh, there's too many suttas to still go through. And uh, as usual, time tends to get a bit tight towards the end of these retreats. So, uh, in other words, the uh, Buddha-to-be realizes I need to contemplate more on the danger in sensual pleasures. Uh, then, Ananda, it occurred to me, if, having seen the danger in sensual pleasures, uh, I would cult- cultivate that insight, uh, and if, having achieved the benefit of renunciation, I would pursue it, uh, It is then possible that my mind would launch out upon renunciation, become placid, settled, and liberated in it, uh, since I see it as peaceful. Uh, Sometime later, having seen the danger in the sensual world, uh, I cultivate that insight, uh, and having achieved the benefit in renunciation, I pursued it. Uh, My mind then launched out upon renunciation, became placid, settled, and liberated in it, uh, since I saw it as peaceful. So that is the background. So how do we do this contemplation of seeing the danger in the, sen- the sensory world? What, is that? what are some skillful ways of doing that? And uh, this next sutta is a kind of sutta that I read out on pretty much every retreat because it is one of the most detailed ones found uh, detailed ones about uh, sens- the sensory world and how to uh, regard it. And uh, this has seven similes, and these similes sort of explain uh, in, in a nice way how, why the sensory world is uh, problematic. Yeah. So let's just uh, 
let's get into this. And this is uh, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, Sutta number 54, called the Potalia Sutta. And spoken to a man called Potalia. Householder, suppose a dog overcome by hunger and weakness was waiting by a butcher's shop. Then a skilled butcher or his apprentice would toss the dog a well-hacked, clean-hacked skeleton of meatless bones smeared with blood. What do you think, householder? Would that dog get rid of his hunger and weakness by gnawing such a well-hacked, clean-hacked skeleton of meatless bones smeared with blood? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because that was a skeleton of well-hacked, clean-hacked, meatless bones smeared with blood. Eventually that dog would reap weariness and disappointment. So too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus. Sensual pleasures or sensual objects have been compared to a skeleton by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. And... uh, so here we have the idea that the sensual objects of the world are like the skeletons. Yeah, you get thrown all these skeletons uh, every now and again, and uh, then you uh, don't really get so much enjoyment out of skeletons. You can see why that might be the case. So you have this dog. Yeah, he runs to the butcher shop, hoping that the butcher will have compassion on the poor dog. But of course, butchers don't really care so much about dogs, especially the Indian dogs. If you've seen the Indian dogs, they are pretty kind of uh, uh, pretty kind of scary creatures compared to kind of dogs that are used kind of more like household pets in India. They're more like semi-wild animals, uh, and they are uh, pretty full of disease and all kind of stuff. Uh, so the dog waits out the butcher shop, uh, hoping for a real meal, hoping for some nice meat. Uh, and of course, the butcher uh, is, doesn't, you know, doesn't want to waste any money. He gets gets all the meat kind of hacked off that's, uh, those bones, uh, and he throws out the bones with as little meat as possible to that dog. Uh, and then the dog, when it eats that, uh, gets the smell of the bone. Uh, he tries to get sustenance and try to feel satisfied. Uh, he thinks he's going to get a satisfying meal, but only, the only thing he gets uh, is the taste of the blood, the taste of the meat, the promise that there might be something there, but actually there is nothing really there. Huh? And then so you have all that craving, running to the butcher shop, trying to get, get satisfied, huh? but actually there's no satisfaction to be found in that. Huh? And of course, then the uh, dog, not really learning its lessons, it runs off to the next butcher shop, huh? and still hoping that the butcher will, will give it a... Uh, some nice meat, but butchers don't give dogs meat. And and a dog never learns that lesson. Sangsara never gives you that kind of happiness in the sensual realm. In the same way, the butcher never gives you that meat. So again, the same skeleton gets thrown to you again. Still no satisfaction, no uh, contentment with what is given to you. And so on and on it goes. The dog always running after, always hoping, always thinking, always kind of... uh, being stupid and deluded about the nature of butchers, uh, not understanding that butchers don't act in this way. Uh, dogs don't actually uh, get uh, that kind of meat. Uh, yeah, and, and actually, <coughs> there is some chance that there might eventually be a butcher who might give the dog meat, uh, but uh, there's no chance that sangsara is going to give you final satisfaction through sensual pleasures. Uh, so the, the simile is not 100% accurate because... Uh, obviously, butchers might actually give you give a dog something nice, uh, but usually they don't. Uh, and then the dog runs on and on and on forever uh, until one day it dies. Uh, and because it is full of craving when it dies, still looking to the future, it projects itself into a new life. Uh, and then it continues, kind of hits the ground running in the next life and carries on uh, with exactly the same process. Uh, and uh, then it forgets that it did the same thing in the past life. Maybe if it had remembered its past life, uh, I don't know if dogs are capable of remembering their past lives, but if it was, just seeing one dog life after the other, each one equally miserable, uh, it might eventually kind of give up on that. Uh, but it doesn't know that uh, because it is blind to what happened in the past. Uh, and it, of course the point here is that sensual pleasures are exactly the same. Uh, we run after these things, we crave for these things, uh, we get into one relationship and another one, uh, we get certain uh, certain possessions in this world and in others, we enjoy certain things, uh, but they never really provide that satisfaction that we're actually seeking for, uh, that final contentment that we're actually looking for. Uh. 
And you should notice that. It is very quite easy to see if you look at the craving. It always promises you that this next relationship or whatever it is, is going to be satisfying. Now you're going to find the right partner or whatever, and then you're going to be satisfied with that. Or this particular possession that you really need is going to make you feel satisfied. But all of these things tend to be so hollow. They last for a while, and then something goes wrong. And then, of course, you, ha you start seeking again, and on and on it goes. And eventually you die, and you're still not satisfied. And because you're not satisfied when you die, when you get reborn again in your next life, you continue with exactly the same thing, never really learning the lesson, never understanding that samsara or the sensual realm never supplies you with that kind of contentment and satisfaction that you're looking for. And so uh, one day you stop going to the butcher shop yeah, because you realize that's the wrong place to look for meat. That's the wrong place to look for sustenance. Instead, you look for sustenance somewhere else and that other place to look for sustenance. And when the Buddha comes along and says, actually, this is where you should look. If you want that satisfaction, you've been looking in the wrong place all along. This is what you should be doing instead. Practice the spiritual path, because that is where real contentment, real satisfaction actually can arise. And what is so remarkable about this is that when you do pursue that spiritual path, you get exactly what that craving was uh, promising you in the first place. Craving was promising satisfaction, and suddenly you do actually find that satisfaction, but in a far deeper way, in a much deeper sense than you ever thought you can actually get it through sensual pleasures. That is kind of the miracle. Yeah, you have to actually give up the craving. You have to give up the pursuit. And when you give up the pursuit and you look for the happiness somewhere else, the contentment somewhere else, suddenly it comes along. And there it is, found through the spiritual practice. And this is one of the things I would recommend you to look at when you do experience some of the happinesses of the spiritual life, even just small ones, a little bit of contentment in your meditation practice, a little bit of piti sukha arising either through living well or through your meditation practice. And look at that, and it is a very different kind of happiness, a different kind of joy and contentment that you can find in the sensory world. It actually really satisfies you. Craving does actually die down. In the sensory world, craving is always behind the corner because the sensual object doesn't satisfy you. Craving arises very quickly again. But with a spiritual experience, the craving dies down. And as long as you have that experience, as long as you are keep practicing like that, craving does not re-arise because it is fulfilling. It does complete you. It, you do feel full inside. The hole that was there is gone and now you feel like a complete person for the first time. Nothing is missing in your life. Psychologically, you feel uh, satisfied uh, in a way you have never done before. So notice that a feeling of the spiritual path. And as you deepen that meditation, as you let go of the sensual world even more, as the craving dies down even further, that sense of satisfaction eventually becomes complete. And this is what is meant by the state of samadhi. Those of you who have had a taste of samadhi, and I know there are a few of you here on this retreat, you know what that actually means, that complete satisfaction. It is as if you are touching the meaning of life. You're touching the meaning of life because you have always been craving for all of these things, trying to find that sense of completeness, and suddenly you have found that, not through pursuing the craving, but through looking in a different direction. And bang, there you are. Wow, I've actually discovered uh, the purpose of all of this. All those desires that I had before, they're all gone. Now I have actually come to the point that I was seeking all along. Uh, and you have actually found the meaning of life itself. Uh, that is pretty awesome. That This is really is awesome. Yeah, All those other things in life are not all that awesome. Uh, but if something is awesome, it is this. Uh, and you discover something extraordinarily profound and meaningful. This is truly meaningful and truly purposeful. There's a true goal in life, whereas everything else are hollow goals and empty goals that don't really cut the uh, cut, cut much ice, not really work, cut the mustard. So uh, that is uh, the difference between sensual pleasures uh, and the pleasures of the spiritual path. And uh, uh, so try, if you can, 
make some sense of that. It is, I'm sure you can make some sense of it already because it is fairly obvious. It is just a matter of deepening it to the point where it actually has more impact in your practice. So, a simile of the skeleton here. Let's go on to the next simile here. Hans Holder, suppose a vulture, a heron or a hawk seized a piece of meat and flew away. And then other vultures, herons and hawks pursued it, pecked it and clawed it. What do you think, Hans Holder, if that vulture, heron or hawk does not quickly let go of that piece of meat, wouldn't it incur death or death uh, death-like suffering because of that. Yes, venerable sir, so too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus. Sensual pleasures have been compared to a piece of meat by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. So here you have the idea of the sensual objects of the world always being, we're always competing for these things. Yeah, here you have the competition between the birds. You get your sensual pleasures or sensual objects. Finally, you get into that nice relationship. And somebody else is also interested in that person. And for the rest of your life, you're a little bit worried, a little bit concerned at the back of your mind at the very least that this person might leave you or they might get into interested in someone else or, or they might die or whatever. There's always a degree of competition in the world over those things that are considered desirable. And um, uh, and uh, uh, the Buddha actually makes quite a lot out of this. If you there's a sutta in the Majjhima called the uh, Chula Dukkha Kanda Sutta and the Mahadukkha Kanda Sutta, which means the greater discourse on the mass of suffering. Uh, and the Buddha talks in a bit of detail about how we always compete over things and how the kings are going to take your take your possessions in taxes and the thieves are going to steal them and your heirs are going to kind of uh, you know make off with your belongings or whatever whatever else it is or people brother fighting with brother and sister with sister and parents with children uh, over the things of the world uh, and you know that is true yeah how how uh, often in the world we do actually fight over these things and we're not really satisfied with what we have uh, and uh, when your parents die the heirs fight over the fortune that is left behind uh, in daily life you are we're all competing for jobs and promotions and kind of to look good in the in the boss's eyes uh, in um, you know, children are fighting over toys perhaps uh, and all of these things continuously uh, a sense of uh, competition over things uh, never really being at peace uh, never really being at ease uh, the sensory world is limited. Uh, there's only so much to it. Uh, there's only so much. The economy is only so large. Uh, and there's only so much to go around. Your piece of the pie is only going to be so large. Uh, and uh, other people are going to have to have their share as well. Uh, and even if you do get a larger piece of the pie, still it is not enough. Uh, even if you are the ruler of the entire world, uh, still it is not enough. Uh, still you want more. Uh, even if you rule the entire galaxy, one galaxy, not enough. Uh, and I have, I have this idea that the reason, you know, the, in cosmology, they have this idea of the multiverse, yeah, many, uni not only one universe, yeah, many, many infinite number of universes. My theory is that they invented that because craving was too strong. One universe was not enough. They wanted more universes, yeah, so at least potentially then you can rule not just one universe, what, only one universe? I want another one. And then they kind of made it infinite number because when there's an infinite, there is no limit anymore. So then you can just keep on craving forever. Craving always kept going because there's always more to get. But even then, you won't be, won't be satisfied. And of course, the problem is that... Uh, we go around seeking for all of these things. Uh, we go around seeking for this. And the problem is always that uh, the reason we are not satisfied, and I, I should have mentioned this before, is because it is a psychological hole. Uh, yeah, we don't have that joy. We don't have that equanimity. We don't have that good feeling inside of us. Uh, and we try to fill a psychological gap or a psychological lack through external means. Uh, and that is the kind of the sensory world trying to fill up this hole inside of us. 
But in the end, it's never going to work out. Uh, the external things can only do a tiny little bit for you, very, very little, in fact. Uh, and the only way you're going to be able to fill in that, fill up that uh, psychological hole inside of you uh, is by developing your mind and developing those happinesses that actually lead to true satisfaction. Uh. So uh, this is kind of problematic, isn't it? That uh, sensory attachment, the sensory world, always leads to conflict in this way. Uh. It's one of the things that is very off-putting about the sensory world and sensual pleasures, always leading to conflict. So and this is what I mentioned before, that one of the root defilements is the sensual defilement, and that ill will and anger and aggression, all these kind of things, very often is derived from that sensory world because of that competition, that fighting, and all of these things that we do have over these things. And... I, th I don't know, but I've, this is kind of one of the things that is very, really, really off-putting about that world, uh, that it is inherently tied up with conflict, violence, and problems of this kind, uh, and it's impossible to separate the two completely. Uh, and it puts you off sensuality quite, uh, quite strongly when you, when you see it in that way. Uh, uh, and uh, but of course, if you, uh, if you practice the. Uh, spiritual life uh, instead and you find the happiness inside instead of externally uh, there is no competition anymore uh, it is your private happiness uh, and in fact it leads to the exact opposite of competition it leads to the exact opposite of violence uh, because that inner world when it is developed in the right way actually leads to friendliness and kindness instead uh, competition is subdued uh, you create harmony in the world you create friendliness in the world uh, so the spiritual path has this double effect to it. Uh, it leads to the contentment inside uh, and it also leads to external harmony at the same time because you're no longer competing about things. Uh, you don't go to war over the oil resources in the Middle East because uh, actually uh, you don't care about those oil resources anymore because now you have an inner happiness instead. Uh. So that is the uh, problem of uh, competition over these, these things. Uh, yeah, The second simile uh, and uh, the third one uh, goes as follows. Householders suppose a man took a blazing grass torch and went against the wind. What do you think, householder, if that man does not quickly let go of that blazing grass torch, wouldn't that blazing grass torch burn his hand or his arm or some other part of his body so that he might incur death or death-like suffering because of that? Yes, venerable sir, so too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus. Sensual pleasures have been compared to a blazing grass torch by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. Blazing grass torch, it comes in handy if it is dark. Yeah, you bring it up, you see a bit, of, see a bit in the darkness. In the same way, the sensual pleasures provide a little bit of satisfaction, a little bit of happiness. That's why you pursue them. But that blazing grass torch, as soon as you lift it up and you go against the wind and the embers kind of fly back on you, you burn and you, become, and you get some very serious burns on your body if you keep on holding it against the wind. So uh, in the same way, sensual pleasures, they provide a bit of happiness, but all these sensual objects that you attach to, they turn around and they bite you because they are impermanent, because they're out of your control. They're going to do their own thing, act, go according to their own nature. Nature will take back its own. And this is what nature does. Whenever nature is ready, bang, it will take it back. And because in the meantime you have attached and you have held on to this in the same way as you hold on to a blazing grass torch, in the same way you suffer as a consequence. Because now that place where you got, get happiness and pleasure gets uh, uh, pulled, uh, get, gets taken away from you again. Huh? So you let go of that blazing grass torch, uh, or you hold it very lightly. Huh? You don't hold it against the wind, which means you're holding it lightly, you hold it with a degree of wisdom. Huh? We have to live in the sensory world, so you have to kind of uh, deal with the sensory world to some extent, uh, but we learn how to deal with it with wisdom, instead of uh, being silly, instead of believing in promises that can never actually be met.
Okay. Next simile here. Householders, suppose there were a charcoal pit, deeper than a man's height, full of glowing coals without flame or smoke. Then a man came who wanted to live and not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And two strong men seized him by both arms and dragged him towards that charcoal pit. What do you think, householder? Would that man twist his body this way and that? Yes, venerable sir, why is that? Because that man knows that if he falls into that charcoal pit, he will incur death or deadly suffering because of that. So too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus. Sensual pleasures or sensual objects have been compared to a charcoal pit by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. As a char sensual pleasures are like a charcoal pit. What do you think? Does that make sense? Gonna, let's test it out. Actually, there's not much pleasure in this one. This is kind of very neutral, neutral sense pleasure. It's more like upeka in this one here, so it's okay. Just nice to just nice to kind of clear your throat a little bit, so it's perfect. So, is that does that make any sense to you? Sensual pleasure are like a charcoal pit. Maybe fleetingly it might make sense when you get into a deep meditation and you understand how all the craving is so kind of unpleasant. It may kind of make a little bit of sense. But it's pretty hard to see this, isn't it? Uh, how sensual pleasures can be a charcoal pit. Uh, normally, we enjoy the sensual objects in the world. Uh, so this is a very challenging simile. It's, I think it's the, probably the most challenging of all these ones. Uh, the other ones we can make sense of, it, at least to some extent. Uh, but this one here is really kind of hard to, to understand. Uh, so uh, to um, understand this one, the Buddha talks about this particular Similarly, in another sutta, this other sutta is called the Magandhya Sutta, Middle Length Sayings number 75. And uh, in the sutta, he uh, gives a more detailed explanation of what is going on. Uh, so I will, I'll, I'll tell you, many of you will have heard this before, but for those of you who have not heard this before, I will just uh, mention this again. And uh, uh, the idea in this sutta, there's a man called Magandhya. And the Buddha uh, meets this man, and this man, Magandhya, he is a wanderer, but he believes in the sensual pleasures being the highest happiness. Uh, and uh, the Buddha gives him the simile of the leper. Uh, and the simile of the leper is where uh, the Buddha uh, says that, well, when a leper, uh, because the wounds of a leper are so incredibly itchy, the wounds are, can be really bad to the point where, you know, pieces of your fingers fall off and that sort of thing. Incredibly itchy, full of worms and all kinds of things, to the point where it is pleasant for that leper to go and burn his limbs over a fire. So literally, you go to a fire like a charcoal pit, yeah, and you burn your fingers, because that is the only way to alleviate some of that terrible itching that you have in those wounds. Yeah, so you burn your fingers, and afterwards you feel a bit of relief. And then the Buddha says to Magandha, and then this leper, uh, he finds a doctor. Uh, and this doctor is able to treat this person of leprosy. Uh, and when he is treated of leprosy, uh, uh, he is kind of happy. yeah. And then the Buddha says to Magandha, well, once this person is treated of leprosy, uh, would he go back to that fire and burn his fingers over that fire again? Uh, and Magandha says, no, of course not. Uh, and the Buddha says, why? And Magandha says, well, because before, when he was a leper, uh, his faculties were distorted. Uh, they were perverted. He couldn't see things according to reality. Uh, so although he thought he was experiencing pleasure, he was actually experiencing pain. Uh, so Once that uh, discomfort is gone, uh, there's no way you're going to go back to that fire again. Uh, and so the Buddha says, well, the fire has always been hot, but both now and before. It is just that before his sense, his uh, world, his outlook was distorted. Uh, so he wasn't able to experience what was painful uh, as actually painful. He thought it was happy. Uh, and uh, so this is an uh, extraordinarily powerful simile. Uh, the simile of the leper burning your burning. Uh, their hands over the fire uh, because they have a distorted perception of reality. And the Buddha says this is what sensory pleasures are like. Uh, 
Yeah, we have this distorted perception of reality. You think that something is happiness, when actually, from a higher point of view, once you have been cured by Dr. Buddha, and Dr. Buddha has kind of sorted out your illness of craving, actually you realize it was all suffering all along, and it wasn't really worthwhile. Yeah, so it, it's hard to get, it's hard to get, because it, is, it takes a kind of you know, bird's eye view from above. You have to stand above all of that and understand what it is like. Only then can you see these things properly. But one way of thinking about this, you can think a bit, a bit like smoking. I don't know if some of you probably have smoked here occasionally. And when you smoke a cigarette, especially the first few times, it's terrible. It's absolutely, absolutely awful. There's nothing pleasurable at all in smoking a cigarette, apart from thinking that you're really cool, yeah? and you're kind of hanging out with the boys, and you're kind of messing around or whatever. So you smoke that cigarette. But there's nothing really pleasurable in that, until you get addicted. And once you are addicted to the nicotine, yeah, wow, is it pleasurable. I don't actually, I've never been addicted to nicotine, but that's what they say. It is incredibly pleasurable because the craving is so strong. And with that incredibly strong craving, it is merely the fact that you are subduing the craving. That is what makes it pleasurable. Just like that leper, you're just subduing the craving to get rid of the itch. That is why it seems happy when actually there is a, the experience itself actually is one of suffering. So cigarettes are a bit like that. You are subduing the craving, and that is what makes cigarettes so delightful. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah? You, we, we give rise to craving so that we can overcome the craving, here, because then it is pleasurable to overcome it. In other words, we give rise to suffering because then it is pleasurable to get rid of the suffering afterwards. That's what it is. It's a bit like going and banging your head in the brick wall and then feeling how nice it is when you stop. <laughs> yeah. This is the sensual world. Yeah. So this is what the Buddha is saying about the sensual world. This is what, you, that this is what we're all doing. We're all going around banging our heads in brick walls all the time. So, and so please stop banging your head in the brick wall. Yeah. <laughs> This is what the Buddha is saying. This is kind of his advice. Let's stop doing that because uh, you know you have more happiness without. There's enough problems as there is already. Uh, so uh, reflect on that, uh, and uh, you will find. And what is interesting is that it has also been uh, shown, I think, in a in kind of scanning people's brains, etc., when they enjoy sensual pleasures, especially sexual pleasures. Uh, that actually it is the uh, pain center in the brain that often lights up uh, during these pleasures, uh, which is kind of astonishing. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and uh, that kind of almost proves the Buddha's point uh, that uh, uh, it is actually painful, uh, but because of the craving that is actually induced there at that particular point, uh, it, actually, uh, it actually is experienced as a, as a happiness. You overcome the craving and that part of it. Uh. So reflect on that. So whenever you see a nice sensual pleasure in the world, remember, charcoal pit, charcoal pit, and then see what happens. <laughs> so, let's go on to the next one. Householders, suppose a man dreamt about lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows, and lovely lakes. And on waking, he saw nothing of it. So too, householder, a noble disciple, considers thus. Sensual pleasures have been compared to a dream by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. So they are like a dream. And um, again, this is quite, quite easy to relate to because all you have to do is compare the promise of the sensual pleasures, the sensual objects, uh, compare the promise with the actual reality of achieving them. Uh, yeah, and very often you pursue these things, you run after them, and when you achieve them, they don't really live up to the billing, or they only live up to it for a very short period of time, and then you kind of get bored, it's not really interesting after, after a while. Uh. So just look at the, uh, the desire, the promise beforehand, uh, and compare that to the reality. Uh. And that's why when you see that it is a bit like a dream. Uh. It is also a dream in a kind of larger scale, uh, and that is when you kind of look at your life uh, more 
you know, from a point of view of looking towards the future in a kind of bigger scale. Uh, when you are young, you think about what your life is going to be like. Uh, and of course, it's nothing like what you think it's going to be when you're young. Uh, and I am a good example of that. I, when I was young, I thought about I'm going to have a job like this, a girlfriend like that, and you know, have everything going to be really nice and good. And you, you see where I ended up. It kind of it is the the difference between what happened and what kind of what I was thinking was just so enormous. And this is the problem with life. We always have this dream. We have this fantasy about what life is like. And it never actually happens that way. It always goes somewhere else. So gradually we kind of downsize our dreams a little bit. And we get more realistic. And this is one of the advantages of getting a bit older. You get more realistic about what life can get you. So get this now. Get it when you're young. The younger you are, the sooner you get the idea of what life is about, the better it is. You don't, kind of, you don't end up, instead of... Uh, becoming a little bit wiser when you get old. Some people never get wiser, doesn't matter how old they get, but uh, you know, at least sometimes you get a bit wiser when you get older. Get it as soon as possible, uh, and then you don't have to kind of waste all that time, and you can use your life in a, in a better way as a consequence. Uh. So sensual pleasures are, they are sens the craving is like a liar. Craving gives you a vested interest in the object, uh, and when you have a vested interest in the object, uh, you're not going to see it for what it is. Uh, you're going to see all the good things there. Uh. When you fall in love with someone, you see all the good sides in that person. It's, the vested interest is complete. Uh, you cannot see any of the bad sides, uh, and they only kind of come out later on when you, after living them for a few months or a year or whatever, uh, then you start to see the downside. Everyone has a downside. There is no such thing as a perfect person. Uh, yeah, the perfect relationship is a myth, and it's a myth made by craving. It doesn't actually exist. Uh, and the sooner you get that, the kind of the uh, the the better. Anyway, so that is the uh, simile of the dream. Then we have the next one here. Householder, suppose a man borrowed goods on loan, a fine carriage and fine jeweled earrings, and proceeded and surrounded by those borrowed goods, he went to the marketplace. Then people seeing him would say, Sirs, that is a rich man. That is how the rich enjoy their wealth. Then the owners, whenever they saw him, would take back their things. What do you think, householder? Would that be enough for that man to become dejected? Yes, venerable sir, why is that? Because the owners took back their things. So too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus. Sensual objects and pleasures have been compared to borrowed goods by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great." Borrowed goods, a very useful perception about the sensual objects of the world, everything that belongs to the sensory world, everything has a everything is gonna is gonna last only so long before it's gonna be taken away from you, and a very useful perception because we think that we own things, we think that things are ours, and when we own things, we think that we have power over them, that we are in control, that we are in charge. But ownership is just an illusion. So uh, this is one of the illusions that we have to let go of. It's a difficult one to let go of completely, but uh, gradually we can let go of that because we understand that things have a life of their own. They have their own nature. They're not gonna, we can't really control these things as we would like to. So uh, what happens when something is borrowed? And it's very useful to bring up the perception of something, of borrowing something. Uh, when you borrow something from somebody, uh, yeah, what does that feel like? Uh, well, you never get too attached to it usually uh, because you know you're going to only have it for a few days or a couple of weeks or whatever. Uh, or if you rent something like a car, uh, you never get too attached to a rented car because you know you're just going to have it for a few days and then you have to give it back again. Uh, you, you never build up that strong attachment to it. Uh, uh, or a rented apartment. Uh, if you have a rented apartment, uh, then uh, uh, how much attachment are you going to have to have to that apartment? Uh, how much effort are you going to use to make that apartment really nice and beautiful when you are renting it from someone else? Uh, 
not all that much, maybe a little bit because you want to have a nice place to stay, but you're not going to spend vast amount of money to make it up really beautiful and nice because uh, you know that you're gonna, it's going to be the owner who benefits from all that money that you put into it. It's borrowed goods. You enjoy it, but you don't become too attached to it. You don't spend enormous amounts of your time and effort and uh, everything to kind of uh, to make everything just right in that apartment. And in the same way, when you are in the sensory world, uh, you, we understand that all of the things in this world, they have their, uh, they have their kind of their, um, use by date. They're going to eventually, they're going to disappear, fade away. Uh, you can't control them. They're going to be out of control. Uh, uh, they're going to let you down eventually, regardless of what happens. Uh, so they are all, everything is like borrowed goods. Uh, so how much time and money are you going to invest in all those borrowed goods? Uh, how much time and money are you going to invest in all the uh, uh, things that are related to the sensory aspects of your life? Uh, your uh, possessions, uh, even your relationships, uh, even your things like your status, uh, Yeah, your status in this world. Uh, all of these things are related and tied up with this world uh, and they're going to disappear when this world disappears. Uh. So what happens when you understand the inherent unsatisfactoriness and impermanence of these things uh, is that you start to invest your time in a different way. Uh, instead of looking for satisfaction, looking for contentment in borrowed goods uh, that you know are inherently, pr is inherently problematic, uh, you start to look for what is lasts longer, uh, what is not as borrowed, what is more kind of owned by you. Uh, and what are the things that are owned by you? Uh, well, the Buddha says in the Sutta, he says, Kama, yeah? You are the owner of your kama. You are the owner of your, you're the heir of the kama. It is how you, how you live your life. It is the kindness, it is the spiritual qualities, and all of these things that you put into your life. These are the things that you carry on with you into the future. And this is where you should put an em your emphasis. And uh, what this means in practice, it doesn't mean a great deal necessarily in practice uh, in terms of how, what you do in your life. Uh, you can still live a very ordinary life, uh, but it means a lot in how you actually live that life, what your attitude is to that life. Uh, it, it means what, do, what kind of intentions you put into it, uh, what kind of uh, aspirations you put into it. Uh, and you become more kind, you become more, you're looking for caring for people, caring for the situations, being more generous and all of these things uh, as part of that life that you live. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that you kind of straight away become a monastic or you start living as a hermit or anything like that. Uh, it just means that your attitude to existence changes. Uh, and gradually, gradually you do that because you understand where long-term happiness, long-term benefit is to be found. Uh, and this is so important, I, I mentioned this before, but you can imagine that you spend your life only pursuing things that belong to this world, uh, possessions, relationships, uh, status, uh, uh, whether, um, uh, pro uh, promotions at work, and all of these kind of things. And your entire identity, who you are as a person, is tied up with this world in this way. Uh. And then you come to your deathbed, uh, and you're about to die, uh, and everything you have invested in belongs to this world, uh, and now you have to move on. Uh. What does that feel like? It feels quite terrible, yeah? It feels like you have wasted your time. Uh. You feel confused because you wonder what on earth was this life all about? Uh. It seems so completely pointless. Uh. You spent all this time building up all of these things, and now they have to go again, uh. It's a terrible feeling if you live like that. And of course, what often happens, uh, because you have been so focused on the things that belong to this world and that has been so important to you, very often you have also done things that were a bit immoral. Uh, you've done things, you've taken shortcuts, uh, you have uh, 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 cheated some of your customers, you haven't paid your taxes properly, you have kind of lied sometimes to kind of get that business deal to go through. Uh, yeah, you have done many things and sometimes maybe quite serious things uh, to enable you to build up something in this life. Uh, and now all of that has to go. Uh, and as part of that process, you have done bad things that have dragged you down at the same time. Uh, what a terrible way to die. Uh, what, a, what a horrible thing. You feel not only empty, but you feel that you have actually uh, left yourself in a worse position uh, than you were when you started out. Uh, and now you have to live with the consequences, carry on with the consequences into the future. Uh. And this is where the idea of life not being limited to this one existence, uh, 
but kind of being expanded out, yeah, out and out to include all of these other lives uh, becomes so important uh, because you start to see the bigger picture of these things. Uh, you start to see what actually is going on. Uh, and then your investment strategy, so to speak, changes. Uh, you invest differently. Uh, you start to think more about the how of, of living rather than you know, what I can get out of this, uh, uh, which is a very shallow way of living your life. Uh. So remember this idea of the borrowed goods. Uh, remember the things that you truly own. Actually, even those things, you don't truly own them, but you own them in a much deeper sense than the borrowed goods of the world. Uh, and uh, it's a very nice way. Look around you. Look at the things you own. Look at them as something you are borrowing rather than something you're owning. Uh, look at your partner life as someone you are borrowing for a short time, not someone you own. Uh, we often think that we own our partners in the world. That's why we have expectations of them. That's why we want them to be in a certain way. We want them to kind of, uh, whatever. It's this degree of ownership there. Yeah? We always have a degree of ownership towards the people who are closest to us. Remember, they are borrowed as well. Your status is borrowed. Your education is borrowed. Most of your identity belongs to this world is borrowed. All of that has to go. And this is why we tried yesterday with this death contemplation, because it uh, kind of clears out all of those borrowed things, uh, and then you can see what remains. Uh, and ideally, what remains should be something beautiful, uh, something nice, uh, something you feel good about uh, taking with you into the future. Uh. Okay. Simile of the borrowed goods, sir. And uh, now we come to the last of these similes, uh, and uh, it goes as follows. Householder, suppose there were a dense grove not far from some village or town, uh, within which there, were, there was a tree laden with fruit, uh, but uh, none of, the f of its fruit had fallen to the ground. Uh, then a man came, needing fruit, uh, seeking fruit, wandering in search of fruit, and he entered the grove and saw that tree laden with fruit. Then he thought, this tree is laden with fruit, but none of its fruit has fallen to the ground. I know how to climb a tree, so let me climb this tree, eat as much fruit as I want, and fill my bag. And he did so. Then a second man came, needing fruit, seeking fruit, wandering in search of fruit, uh, and taking a sharp axe, he too entered that grove uh, and saw that tree laden with fruit. Uh, and he thought, uh, this tree is laden with fruit, but none of its fruit has fallen to the ground. I do not know how to climb a tree, so let me cut this tree down at its root, uh, eat as much fruit as I want, uh, and fill my bag. And he did so. What do you think, householder? If that first man who had climbed the tree doesn't come down quickly, when the tree falls, wouldn't he break his hand or his foot or some other part of his body so that he might incur death or death-like suffering because of that? Yes, venerable sir. So too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus. Sensual objects or pleasures have been compared to fruits on a tree by the Blessed One, they provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. So here the man enters this grove, and the grove is like the sensory or sensual world. Yeah, it's like being reborn in the human existence, and you, when you're reborn in human existence, yeah, that is kind of your entry into the grove. And once you have entered that grove, you wander around, uh, you can't see very far because the trees are dense, you have no overview, you don't really understand what is going on, you're just trapped in this tiny little existence called human existence. Uh, we don't even know that you're trapped in this tiny little, you can't really have any overview of things, you're not even aware of that. Uh, but that, says the Buddha, is the reality here. Uh, and as you walk around this grove, not seeing very far, you're looking for happiness. Yeah? And you're looking at these various trees to see if there's any tree that can provide you with happiness. And then you look up this tree and you see this mango tree. Beautiful mangoes. Yeah? Is anyone here who doesn't like mangoes? If you don't like mangoes, think of some other tree that you like. Yeah? <laughs> but mango is like a fruit everyone likes. That's why I kind of usually say mangoes. 
So you uh, come to this beautiful mango tree. The mangoes are just right, yeah? And you know what the mango that is just right is like? It's just, wow, it's so nice and so sweet and so beautiful. Consistency is, everything is right. Uh, so you climb up that tree, yeah? And because the mangoes are so beautiful, uh, what happens? You get intoxicated. Uh, and this is one of the problems of the sens uh, sensory world, is that intoxicates you. We get intoxicated by sensory pleasures. Uh, and this is what I mean by having a vested interest. All we want at the time when you have craving uh, is you want to indulge in that object. Uh, and you don't really want to think about the consequences of that indulge indulging and what it actually leads to in the future. Uh, so you sit there, you eat your mangoes, and you're so happy. You're kind of completely oblivious of what is happening around you. Huh? No idea what's going on. Huh? And then this other fellow comes along, huh? and he starts chopping down the tree at the root. But you have no idea. You can't hear a sound because you're just focusing on the pleasures at the moment. Huh? And of course, eventually, that tree comes down. Huh? And all the time, you have been intoxicated, indulging yourself, and then the tree falls over. And then perhaps you break your neck or whatever, and you incur death or death-like suffering as a consequence. In the middle of us pursuing sensual pleasures, being intoxicated, being heedless about the greater uh, problems of life where suffering really is to be found, not really having an overview of what's going on. In the middle of all that, because we are intoxicated, everything comes crashing down and you die. Yeah, And then, uh, uh, of course, you have, then you have all the problems of dying because you haven't really lived well or whatever. And then you keep on carrying on in your next life. Uh. And the problem with being intoxicated is that when you are intoxicated, because you have a vested interest in the object, uh, you tend to also, if necessary, you also do things that are wrong to make sure that you get that happiness that you think you should be having. Uh, this is the problem with vested interest, uh, is that we don't see straight. Uh, and we do things that are immoral, that are wrong, that actually lead to long-term harm and long-term suffering. Uh, and uh, this is the problem with intoxication of any kind, whether it's alcohol, whether it's sensory pleasures, or whether it's any other kind of intoxication. Anything that leads uh, your mind not to be clear and to understand and see things as they actually are. So what is the alternative? And uh, the alternative is, and this is uh, another nice simile find in the, one of the suttas, this is from the Dantabhumi Sutta, Middle-length sayings, number 125, if you want to look it up. Dantabhumi means something like, Danta means tamed. Bhumi means ground, the ground of the tamed, the level of the tamed, something like that. It's a little bit uh, not directly translatable, really. Uh, the grade of the tamed is venerable. And then I'm all this translation. Uh, it's still a bit obscure, perhaps. Uh, and in this sutta, the Buddha has this simile of two friends. And these two friends, they are walking along, and they come to a mountain or a hill. And then one friend says to the other one, let's walk to the top of that hill and see what happens. And the other friend, he's, kind of, he's not interested. Nah, you, you go up, I'll just stay here at the bottom. So the one friend, he, uh, he goes to the top, and he says, wow, up here, the view is so good. I can see fields, I can see villages, I can see little rivers, I can see you know, all of these things everywhere around. And the fellow at the bottom is a bit grumpy. There's no way you can see that stuff at the top of the hill. I don't believe a word of what you're saying here. So the fellow at the top, he gets a bit exasperated. So he goes down to the bottom of the hill, grabs his friend by the arm, pulls him up to the top and says, now, what do you see here? And his friend gets, feels a bit sheepish because, yeah, you know, I see fields, roads, rivers, <laughs> just like you said. Uh, and uh, then the friend says, well, why did, while you were standing at the bottom, why did you say, you, you know, these things don't exist? Uh, and then he says, well, because I was hindered by this very mountain. Uh, this very hill was blocking my view, so I couldn't see these things. Uh, and here, in this simile, the hill is like the five hindrances. Uh, the five hindrances of which the essential pleasure is the most important one, they block your view, they block your ability to actually see things according to reality, to see what is there. You, ca you cannot get that bird's eye view, seeing everything from the top of the hill, as long as you are immersed in sensory existence. You are actually, uh, you, you can't see it. And it, of course, the 
A classical simile for that is like the frog or the, or the tadpole in water. As long as the tadpole is in water, it doesn't understand what water is all about. It's only when the tadpole becomes a frog and then jumps out of the water that it really understands what it is. Because if you have always been in something, it's impossible for you to have perspective. In the same way, if you have always been immersed in the sensory world, and this is what we, what we are, yeah, we're pretty much always immersed in the sensory world from the moment you wake up in the morning to the time you uh, go to sleep at night and then you dream about it as well at night. Uh, so it's always there. So we have no perspective. We don't understand it. We don't know what's going on. Uh, so you need to remove yourself. You need to go to that mountaintop. Uh, and going to the mountaintop, what is that? Well, that's attaining samadhi. Uh, yeah? When you withdraw from the five uh, hindrances and you withdraw from the sensory world entirely uh, and then when you get that bird's eye perspective uh, when you move out of that world uh, is the first time you can actually understand what it is about uh, and then you can see the fields uh, you can see the rivers down there you can see the villages uh, you in other words what you do is you understand what is happiness and what is suffering uh, because you have that perspective from above uh, and that is uh, uh, this beautiful simile of withdrawing from the jungle, withdrawing from the grove, not climbing those trees anymore because those trees are dangerous. They only lead to intoxication and problems. And instead, you go down the path of samadhi. You extract yourself entirely from that sticky world of sensual pleasures that ties you to samsara, ties you to the ever moving around from life to life. And now, for the first time, you start to get perspective on what is going on. So, uh, there you are here. Those are just some ways of thinking about sensuality. Some of those uh, ways are pretty stark and pretty kind of in your face, and you really, uh, you know, you uh, you may not even think it's true, or perhaps you have some inkling that it's true. I don't know, but uh, use these things for reflections, and as you use them for reflection, and over time they will have an effect on you, and they will help you to gain deeper samadhi. Don't use them as, uh, you know, to beat yourself up and to be, think you are a bad person because you enjoy the sensual world. Uh, there's nothing wrong as such with, uh, you know, sen the sensuality is considered a small fault by the Buddha. But the idea is to kind of try to naturally emerge from this without making it into some kind of hardship or something that is too difficult. Uh, uh, otherwise, it tends to become counterproductive. Uh, and when it becomes counterproductive, you won't be able to sustain the practice of this path. Uh. So, uh, there you are. Uh, and uh, I will see you back again at 3 p.m. this afternoon. Uh.